What's up, everyone? Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. It's currently a cloudy day in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm where I live, and I, I just <laughs> can't emphasize enough. I cannot wait to get down to spring training in Florida, minor league spring training starting in April, just to be able to see the sunny blue skies and uh, help out my my mood a little bit more. Because it's when it's cloudy like this, like it is usually this time of year. Uh, it's tough to sometimes be in, be in a, a great mood all day long. So can't wait for that to happen. I am very excited, though, that I was able to record this episode with a great pitching coach, a great guy, and Ben Brewster. Ben is currently the owner, the co-owner of Tread Athletics. And what Tread Athletics is, it's a company that really focuses on educating and training pitchers remotely. So they currently work with over 600 pitchers across the country. Actually, maybe even a couple other countries too. I don't I don't remember exactly what he said, but I know it's over 600 pitchers. He have a team of, of 17 staff members, so they're able to really scale and work with a ton of players and help out a ton of players. In this episode, we talk about how what it's how how he is able to work with players remotely that's a challenge and it's something that I was pretty intrigued about when I had been on the podcast originally like how are they able to do that and you'll be able to tell just by listening that they have it really down to a science and how they do it they're even able to help players on the mental side of the game and really make it simplistic and Ben is very upfront and honest you you have to be extremely motivated as a pitcher to work with them remotely because it's not just going to be spoon-fed to you and they're not going to chase after you all the time. Like you're going to have to, to, to go to go out and really put some work in and, and doing some of the video work and, and communicating with them on how you're feeling after certain exercises and drills. So I was very interested to have Ben on just because I think the remote training piece is is just interesting to me and I've been able to watch Ben from afar for a few years now and I've talked to some players that he's worked with and he's he's done a great job developing them and they speak very highly of him too so it's going to be a good episode I, I enjoyed listening to it and um, after I got done recording it and was able to pick up even some more nuggets just from when I was recording it originally the only thing that I do ask for all those of you listening, if you find any value out of this podcast, if you find value just out of this episode alone, please share it. Please share it with someone who you think would get some value of it too. Please retweet on social media. I really try hard not to spam with ads on these episodes because I want to just be about content. So the only thing I ask is if you just you just share the show on social media, share it, text it to someone who you might think, would, would get some value of it too. So appreciate that. If you do go and do that again, I, I really would have really would like that and appreciate it. And it would, it would help out the, the overall downloads of the show. So ladies and gentlemen, here is my episode with Ben Brewster. All right, we're now live with Ben Brewster of Tread Athletics. Ben, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So you've been, I've been following you a little bit online for a few years now. You've been, you know, you were a pitcher. I think I saw you pitch at University of Maryland. Now you have a, a your own company. You do you train a lot of players remotely. Just give everyone a little bit of your background in in baseball because I know you've been in baseball for a while and and been doing you know Tread Athletics for a few years now. For sure. Yeah. So I'm actually still, uh, still pursuing my own pro career. I've been injured for a few years. I've had 
multiple surgeries, hip, elbow. Um, so I'm actually still working on a comeback myself. I'm 29. Um, but again, from the left side, you throw hard enough, there, there's always a place somewhere. So uh, I am still pursuing it. Um, just as some background. So I was this, I was the kid in high school who threw like 73 uh, my freshman year. I was 6'3", 150 pounds, never lifted weights. I ran, ran on the cross country team because somebody told me that would help me get in shape for baseball. Um, and then at some point that year, things just clicked where I was like, okay, I'm not very good. Like if I want to ultimately play in college and I did and ultimately play professionally, I need to figure something out. I need to kick it into another gear. I need to figure out what I need to do. I need to figure out a plan, figure out a path. And so I literally went from zero knowledge about player development to just trying to educate myself every single day, reading everything out there all through high school, um, you know, which at the time was, I'm sure you remember, wasn't much, you know, this is 2007 to 2010. There wasn't much out there. You had Stephen Ellis's tough cuff. You had Dick Mills, you know, pitching.com. Um, you had some Tom house stuff. Uh, you had the let's talk pitching, you know, online forums, which is, you know, where I spent a lot of my time. You had Paul Nyman and set pro and that was kind of it. And people have kind of forgotten, uh, you know, a lot of these, these people and these sources of information now, but that's really all we had. We didn't have, um, you know, a lot of the, the resources that exist nowadays. So, you know, I was doing my best to learn from all these sources and try to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, you know, I didn't have a pitching coach. I didn't have money for pitching coaches. I'd never played travel baseball. I wasn't around talented players. My high school, you know, was it was just a small high school. No one ever went to college to play baseball for my high school. So I wasn't really surrounded by talent. I didn't have good coaches around me. All I had was kind of the internet and the resources that I had available and my brain to try to figure this out and, and see what I needed to do. So I tried to put the pieces together. I, you know, started lifting. I started doing mobility training. I started, uh, you know, doing all sorts of different throwing programs, weighted ball training. Um, you know, needless to say, I, uh, you know, went down a lot of rabbit holes, had my fair share of injuries and lack of progress and plateaus. And, um, you know, looking back now, I kind of laugh at what I didn't know because I really had no clue. Um, I spent pretty much all of high school spinning my wheels. Um, I managed to get up to 85 uh, by senior year. And that was good enough for me to walk on at the University of Maryland as a kind of sidearm funky lefty. That's the only reason it was good enough. Um, but it's just it's funny now that we we train a lot of athletes who kind of had have similar starting starting places as where I was at 15 years old. Um, you know, they make that kind of progress in the first nine months or the first 12 months, um, you know, without the injuries, without the, the lack of progress, because, you know, coaching really is just expediting this this process. I look at coaching now and coaching is really um, how efficient can we be with our time? And I didn't realize that way back then it was like, Oh, I don't have, you know, 50 bucks for a pitching lesson. What, what's a coach going to tell me? Like I can figure this out myself, but I realize now looking back, like coaching really is about time. If you can find a good coach, because what, what would that time be worth if I threw 93 at 16 years old instead of when I was 21 or I threw 95 at 18 years old instead of 23 or 98 at 21 years old instead of, 26 years old um and so i've kind of i have a different perspective now seeing it from both sides the, the importance of coaching um so i played at university of maryland i walked on i was instantly the worst player on the team my freshman year um you know i was i was a freshman like getting you know whatever uh you know cleaning up after the seniors who you know they all threw 93 and were on scholarship and i was just this walk-on kid who probably didn't deserve to be there quite honestly uh, i was lucky enough that eric backage he's the coach at michigan now uh, he took a shot, a shot on me. He saw something, I guess. Uh, he saw that I was competitive. He saw that, you know, there was some projectability there. Um,
but I basically kind of rode the bench for three years. I really wasn't, uh, I really wasn't good enough to be an ACC player. Maryland was in the ACC until 2014, which was my last year at Maryland. Um, I really wasn't at that caliber until my senior year, but along the way, I was just chipping away every single year. I was throwing 83, 85, my freshman year, 87, 89, my sophomore year, 90, 89, 90, 92, my junior year, and then senior year, I was 90, 95. So I just kept chipping away until I was good enough to get on the field. I think that's something uh, a lot of players are impatient, right? They, they think they have to play their very first year or, um, you know, they just they throw a fit. Like, why am I not playing? But I really tried to control what I could control throughout my college experience. I only threw maybe 25, 35 innings my entire four years. And almost all of those came my senior year. But I ended up being a key player on that team. I ended up getting drafted in the 15th round. Uh, you know, which was surprising to me given that, you know, I didn't throw a ton of high leverage innings because we had so many, you know, scholarship guys throwing 95 on that team. We were, we were kind of a special team. We made it within one win away of the College World Series. Uh, we lost to UVA that year. But, you know, I was on this in this bullpen with eight other guys that could touch 95, all of them on scholarship except me. I didn't throw that many innings. So, you know, I was kind of surprised to be drafted where I was drafted. Um, but again, I went into pro ball. I had a pretty good first year. I made it up to high A my first year and then it kind of had, a, you know, a string of injuries from that point on shoulder, elbow. Uh, I've had a hip surgery now. So, you know, kind of just been a, a roller coaster. A lot of these injuries I can trace back to things I did in high school and injuries I had early in college when I didn't know how to lift properly, uh, you know, weightlifting injuries or uh, mechanical issues that led to some injuries that ended up becoming these nagging uh, kind of movement issues um, that turned into injuries later on. So, you know, that's, that's something else that I've learned through the process is it's so important to get it right from the start. If you can develop good, healthy mechanics at 15, 16 years old, even younger, then, you know, it's like a car that's well-tuned from when you first buy it. It's well-tuned. The tires are aligned. You've got the right oil lubricant, everything in there. That car is going to go a lot longer, drive a lot better. Performance is going to be higher, obviously, but you're going to get further before it starts to break down. You're going to get more mileage out of it. And so if you you know, don't tune everything right. You don't take care of your tissue quality. You don't take care of your mobility. Your mechanics are all out, all you know, out of sync. Then you're putting more stress on whatever that limiting link in the chain is. And so I paid the price ten years down the line for mistakes I made in high school because I didn't know what I was doing. So I now view my role as a coach and you know the other coaches that that we have a tread as you know not having not allowing the athletes that work with us to like you know, bark up the wrong tree for years on end, get, get injured, um, and then set themselves up to be, you know, not just decreased performance now, but have a lot more injuries accumulate over time. What so, do you remember what exactly those, those exercises or lifts that you did when you were in high school that caused you to get injured? So a lot of it does come down to form and, and we, we don't have to talk about it uh, too much, but um, some big ones are lumbar flexion, loaded lumbar flexion in heavy deadlift squats, uh, you know, power cleans, uh, anything that's a heavy lower body lift, you got to be really, really careful not to let your low back round at the bottom. Uh, for me, it was a power clean. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of Olympic lifting for reasons we, we can get into if you feel like, um, but we did do it. Our, our team did it freshman and sophomore year of college. And, you know, I was just, I was the guy who worked hard, um, you know, loaded up weight and just tried to get the rep up. And so I kind of paid the price for that. Uh, I remember one rep in particular, I got a ton of rounding. I caught, I caught the rep low, uh, my back rounded. I felt my back tighten up. I got the rep up. Um, 
really since that, since that like week, since right after that, that issue, like I've had consistent low back, you know, things on and off. There's certain things I can't do. Like, I'm not going to go do a broad jump and land with like my back rounded or I'm, I can't walk for two days. Right. There's like certain things I'm not going to ever go deadlift 500 pounds. Like my back just, I'm not going to deadlift 300 pounds. My back just, you know, doesn't like to do that at this point. I have a couple of herniations in my low back. Um, so there's certain things that you do want to get right when it comes to form in the weight room, when it comes to uh, mechanics. I mean, I had all sorts of mechanical issues as well. Um, I can get into if you want, but specifically with, with, uh, with weightlifting, it's so important, not just to look at what you do in the weight room It's just training your muscles to get stronger. You're going to get stronger if you're progressively overloading, but you can get stronger in good patterns or you can get stronger. You can get stronger in really terrible patterns. And so I look at the training process as, we're loading movement. So we're reinforcing either a great hip hinge, a great squatting pattern, a great pressing pattern, a, you know, healthy rowing pattern that teaches the scapula how to move. You know, we're, we're loading these patterns and we can either be loading these bulletproof patterns or we can be loading these really terrible patterns, right? You can, you can be drag racing your car that's all out of alignment or you can be drag racing this car that's been perfectly tuned and you're driving it properly and, and on time and all this stuff. So that's how I look at the training process now. And you know, we've all seen, you know, a high school athlete doing his like football coaches lifting program and his knees are just, they're basically touching his back is rounding, his neck is straining. And, you know, he's squats four or five half squat, his friends all high five him. Like, but what are we, what are we working on there? And there's a lot of research that shows you actually get stronger by doing full range lifting, even if it's lighter weight, than higher weight lifting through partial ranges of motion. Mm. So I don't know if you want to get through, you know, go down that whole rabbit hole, but, um, it's, it's one of those things where just having gone through the experience myself and seeing, seeing how important it is to have clean patterns, not just throwing, but in the weight room, um, you know, I'm pretty, pretty passionate about making sure that guys get it right the first time. Well, I think there's a, <clears throat> I don't know if I call it a misconception or not, but I, I think there's this theory out there that for pitchers to throw harder, they got to get bigger and they need to put on weight and they need to lift heavy. And I think they probably see that and think, well, I'll just start lifting heavy then and I'll start eating a whole lot and I'll get big and mass equals gas and I'll throw hard. And so it seems to me that your story is pretty much kind of like, yeah, you can do that, but you're also going to risk having some serious physical right. issues. It's one of those things where the, the truth is really somewhere in the middle. Um, you can't just say mass equals gas um, because it's a lot more nuanced than that. So there is strength does matter right? You do need to be strong to a certain point to maximize your, your velocity. Um, but at the same time, you need to make sure that what you're doing to get to that point isn't leading to any sort of unnecessary trade-off. So a lot of pitchers don't understand, like building a strength base is a two to four year process. If you try to do that in six months, you're just going to get injured. You can't just load 15 pounds on the more on the bar every single week to your deadlift. You can for a little bit for maybe six or eight weeks, but if you keep doing that, you're going to get hurt. So respecting the fact that your body does take time to adapt, even if your muscles can recover relatively quickly, your, your connective tissue, fascia, your tendons, like they don't recover nearly as fast. It's why you do have to have programmed rest periods of programmed deloads in the weight room. Uh, when it comes to throwing, you can't just, you can throw year round, but you probably shouldn't be in a high intensity phase year round. Probably shouldn't be throwing, you know, 200 pitches max effort. Uh, you know, per week, year round, there needs to be some sort of, uh, it's called periodization, some sort of cycling of the stress to let your body adapt. And so it does take time from a throwing standpoint, 
It takes time from a lifting standpoint for your body to actually adapt. And then the, one of the common misconceptions is that, so we see this all the time. Players will, you know, they'll be, they'll throw like 75. They'll be weak. They'll be skinny. They'll do two or three years of lifting. They'll gain 30 pounds of muscle mass. They'll say, oh my God, strength training is awesome. Mass equals gas. Now they throw 85, 88. And then they think that, okay, I squat 350 pounds. If I can squat 450 pounds, I'm going to throw 93 or they deadlift 450. If I can squat, if I can deadlift 550, I'm going to throw 93. And now they, or whatever the number is, they think that whatever got me to, you know, X is going to get me to Y. And what ends up happening is there's a very, very real point of diminishing returns when it comes to strength training. I'm, I'm sure you're aware, but it's the reason that you don't see, you know, guys in the MLB who are powerlifters. You don't, if it was that beneficial, if it helped that much, you would see a bunch of guys who bench four or five, squat 600 pounds, deadlift 600 pounds. You don't see it because it's not that helpful past a certain point. You also don't see guys that can't bench 135, right? You see guys that are athletic and strong, but they're not outrageously otherworldly powerlifter strong because there's a point at which that doesn't help. And it's actually not that specific to what you're trying to do. Pitching is a, is a speed and power activity. You're trying to throw a five ounce ball. So it's, it's on one complete side of the speed and strength continuum. It's all the way almost the only thing faster would be like throwing a two ounce ball, throwing a wiffle ball or th doing a dry rep without a ball. Like there's almost nothing faster than throwing a five ounce ball, but squatting 600 pounds is about the slowest thing you can do on the strength speed continuum. So it helps to a certain point. You're basically, the idea is to max out like the force side of the power equation. Power is force times velocity. So you want to max out the fourth side, the fourth side to the extent that you can. And then once that starts to have diminishing returns, we, we focus a lot more of our efforts with our advanced guys with the velocity side of the equation. So we're doing power training. We're doing lower load, uh, high velocity training, plyometrics. Um, you know, we're, we're shifting our attention with our more advanced guys. So once somebody can, as rough numbers, bench press, you know, we, not that we use bench press with everybody, but it's bench press equivalent of about 225 pounds for a few reps. So maybe dumbbell bench with hundreds for a few reps or a barbell bench for a few reps with 225 or a weighted push up. There's a way to calculate the, the total load as well. Um, but roughly 225 for a few reps as kind of that threshold, roughly a mid 300 squat for a few reps, and then roughly a low 400s barbell deadlift for a few reps. Like once you hit those, those general ranges, and I'm sure most of the guys, um, you know, you've worked with who, are throwing at a high level are probably at those ranges. Like that's, that's about where you need to get to, but with relatively few exceptions, like getting significantly stronger than that isn't, isn't that helpful. At that point, the lowest hanging fruit is how quickly can I apply that force? Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with everything you just said. And um, yeah, I, I do not see that many guys who are in the big leagues lifting and like insane amount of weight. I, I don't think I've ever really seen that many players, uh, squatting or deadlifting or whatever over 400 pounds at all it seems like if anything it's you know the older guys get the, the less they do on their body um <clears throat> i'm curious story like what go ahead go ahead there, there are some guys who could do like if they yeah they could they could athletes like if they if they took 12 weeks to train like a powerlifter like they could be squatting 550 or deadlifting 600 pounds like there are some guys like that but we have i mean one of our coaches that, that we hired relatively recently uh, he squatted 600 pounds in college. He came in, I think, 225 um, when he started. He's still pursuing his own career, but he came in 80 to 90 in bullpens. He's actually dropped 20 pounds. He's probably lost 10% off his max lifts 
but he's throwing 94, 96 now in bullpens. Wow. And so it's, it's just one of, and, and again, it's been a max velocity focus. It hasn't been a max strength focus. So, so where are you at? Where, where are you at on your own career? Because you, I mean, you're, I see a lot of a, the con, you're putting out some really good content online. You're doing a really good job training all these, all these pitchers. I mean, Hey, where do you have the time to train for yourself? And I mean, like, do you have a timeline? So I had hip surgery. Uh, I had a labor, hip labor repair and ephemeroplasty. So they basically removed a bone spur uh, in my hip and repaired the labrum. Um, that's, so I'm still working through that. Uh, I'll save you the details, but um, I'm not fully recovered from that. I had that last summer. So I'm trying to work through, uh, work through that, figure out how I can get that range of motion back in my hip. Um, basically, I can't really throw until I get that range of motion back. It's, it's you know, my hip immediately runs out of room and, and starts to pinch. Um, so until I can get that range of motion back in my hip, I'm kind of, uh, you know, kind of stalled out um, until I get that fixed. So um, I'm working through that myself. It's actually not me coaching everybody. So we coach about 650 guys at the current moment through Tread. Um, we have 19 people, 19 members of Tread, counting myself. So it's myself, my partner, and 17, uh, 17 employees who work for us. So wow. not all of them are coaches. But again, you see a ton of athletes that we were posting athlete highlights all the time. And it's grown you know, to a crazy extent, quite honestly. But, but yeah, I'm not necessarily coaching everybody myself. Um, my job is really to educate our coaches, give them the tools uh, to succeed. And then I'm really problem solving when a coach has a guy who's having a specific issue and they're kind of stuck on something. Um, we're basically just problem solving. Um, you know, Hey, what would you do with this guy here? What would you do with this guy there? And so that allows us to scale what we're doing significantly better than if it was just me trying to somehow coach, you know, hundreds of guys myself. So, you know, that's kind of our goal with, with tread is to, to continue to scale it out and really have the biggest impact that we can in the baseball world, because we've seen that there's such a huge demand and there's such a huge hole in the, in the private development world, right? Like affiliated teams are doing their best to, to improve their, their development, their technology, their, their knowledge base, but that's really only the guys who are in affiliated ball who have access to that in the, in the private player development world. There's really, I mean, you can count on one hand, the number of facilities that, um, you know, are doing a, doing a really good service um, and looking at it from a well-rounded perspective. What gave you the idea to do this? It seems to me, I'm not, you know, I'm a hitting guy, not a pitching guy, but I, I know enough to be dangerous. And so just following along for a few years, it seems you were one of the, I don't know if I call it the first guy, but maybe the most popular guy, I'll definitely say that, to do the remote training. Like what made you see like, okay, like I see all these other facilities they're doing in person. Like I'm going to do a little different and go remote and just kill it. So it wasn't, it wasn't at all intentional, right? Like, so we started tread, my partner and I, uh, when I was actually 23, he was 19 at the time. Uh, I was 23. And so as crazy as that sounds, uh, you know, I was in my first year of, of pro ball, pro baseball with the white Sox. Um, and I've been keeping a pitching log through high school, like on le these let's talk pitching forums, I've been keeping like a pitching log of my progress that had gained some popularity had, I think it was the most you know, popular log on that, that forum or whatever. So there are a lot of parents who had been following me dads for like seven years and seen that progress, saw that I'd been drafted. Like uh, they ended up reaching out a lot of them. One of them was actually Rob Friedman pitching ninja. Um, but a number of these dads reached out they saw that and they said, Hey, can you write something for my kid? Can you write him a workout plan to gain weight? I saw that you put on 55, 60 pounds. Like, can you write a throwing program? I saw that you've learned a lot about how weighted balls work and have learned from a lot of the people that have initially put these, these programs out there. Like 
can you get my kid better online? And, you know, I didn't have a facility. I was still pursuing my own career. Um, so I said, let me see what I can do. And so Cohen and I, my, my partner, uh, we started trying to figure out how can we, how can we grow and scale this? Because there's a, there's a need and there's a desire for it. Not everybody lives within 30 minutes of one of these, you know, six elite, you know, training facilities in the country. And not everybody wants to go spend five grand flying across the country to train there for a month or two um, at, at these specific places. So, um, you know, there's a need. Most athletes have access to, you know, a radar gun, have access to some facility to throw. They have access to weights. Like they have access to the bare minimum that they need to actually get better. The real, uh, the real lack is they don't have the information. They don't have the information of what are their limiting factors? What, what are they missing? Like, what are they missing in their mechanics? What are they missing uh, from a mobility standpoint, nutrition standpoint. And what we've seen is that everybody really has a different limiting factor. You can't just look at 10, di- you know, 10 different guys. You can't just assume they all have the same issue, right? Like uh, Antoine Kelly, a, a player that we worked with who went from 6'5", 175, throwing 92 to touching 98, second rounder with the Brewers a year and a half later. Um, you know, his limiting factor was nutrition. He just didn't know how to eat. He didn't know how to track his calories, his macros. And, you know, what worked for him, what was his his far and away limiting factor, a guy with perfect mobility, perfect mechanics from day one, you know, he just really needed to learn how to eat. But we have other guys who are the exact opposite. They, they're strong as a bull. They're super explosive, powerful, but they're tightly wound. And they just have some major mechanical flaw somewhere in their chain. So we saw that guys need to be treated as individuals. And there's really, there really wasn't anywhere that was doing that well. And so the, the remote thing just kind of evolved organically. It wasn't us trying to do it. It was dads reaching out, uh, us doing our best to fill that need and then saying, Hey, like we, we actually can get guys better. Like this actually works. As long as we get someone who's motivated and who actually will follow it, we can handle the programming from a macro standpoint. And so that's, that's really the approach that we took. So I, I think the first, uh, so the first year that we were officially launched was 2015 but we planned that strategically. So I released my ebook, uh, building the 95 mile per hour body that like, as soon as the day we were on Twitter, it was the day I released that book. Like the day we officially launched, I released that book because it was like, Hey, we have, you know, we can plant something in the sand and say like, this is, this is our philosophy. Here's, here's the information that I've learned over the course of my career that you can learn from immediately, but we're not just some random Twitter account that has no idea what we're doing. So we were very strategic about how we timed that in terms of, you know, our goal as Tread is to be the top resource, the top informational resource for pitchers in the world. And so, you know, we're, we're constantly doing everything we can to establish that, um, you know, how, you know, from a programming standpoint, nutrition standpoint, um, we're just trying to fill that need in the market. And that need is way bigger than we really could have imagined when we started. It was really just trying to help these couple kids out, um, you know, program for a couple dads, I uh, mentioned uh, Rob Friedman, Pitching Ninja. We started working with Jack at, I think he was 14 years old, throwing 76. Um, by 18, he was throwing 95. Wow. So he was another example of a kid who nutrition was his limiting factor. He had great mechanics. He was just 135 pounds. He needed to be 205 pounds. No one had ever taught him how to eat. No one had taught him how to track his calories, t- track his macros, um, you know, do baseball-specific, uh, you know, mobility or training. So – that was kind of how tread started. And then it's really just, it's grown out from there. Just trying to, once we establish that, you know, it could be done, that you can train someone remotely 
and handle their programming from a macro standpoint and still get them better, then it's like, hey, can we scale that? Can we actually impact the baseball community on a much larger scale? We've shown that we can. And now, as we talked about before we started filming, our goal is to kind of go into this hybrid model where we're going to be not just doing that, but also having this in-person presence as well. Because as you know, there's a ton more that you can do in person than what you can do remotely. As far as data, you know, data gathering, TrackMan, Rapsodo, Pitch Design stuff, um, there's just another layer of, that guys want that you can do in person. So we're kind of going through this this evolution, phase one, phase two, phase three of TRED. But really that, that North Star is can we be that uh, top informational resource for pitchers in the world? And so I, I'm not saying we're there yet, but that's our goal. That's what we're shooting for. And so what most of my time is spent doing is just trying to learn, trying to apply these, these topics um, and try to continue to, to iterate and make our programs better. Continue to educate our coaches and um, you know, improve our processes so that we can get any pitcher that comes in, no matter what flaw they have, no matter what their issue is, whether it's injury history, it's, you know, they had a, a bad rehab from Tommy John, right? There's an infinite number of things that could be holding a guy back. Our goal is that nobody walks through our doors and we don't have the tools to help them. So how, how would it work, right? If, if I wanted to, to train with you, like I send you guys an email and then I've, I've seen some of the stuff you guys put out. It's very, very in-depth. It's, it's probably the most in-depth I've seen from a remote training uh, perspective. So like what happens? I send you uh, some video myself and then you tell me like, hey, I want you to do, we do an assessment remotely and then we just go from there. Yeah, so the first thing is, I mean, we get hundreds of emails a month, but the first thing is we just hop on a call with the guy and make sure that's going to be a good fit. A lot of times it'll be a parent reaching out and the kid doesn't really want to do it. And it's kind of just the parent pushing them. Um, we really try to make sure it's a good fit because when it comes to remote training, the first thing that we tell everybody is that remote training is not for everybody. You do need to be motivated. You can't be the type of guy who needs someone looking over your shoulder, like counting your reps, trying to like push you to work harder. Um, it really works best for the guy who's internally motivated and already has access to, you know, equipment, to facilities. Um, you know, they really just need a plan. They need to know why have I been stuck at 88 for two years? Like, why am I getting stronger but my velocity is not improving? Like, they just need to know what's holding them back. And so that's the guy that really works best. So we try to get on a call with everybody first before they, before even, you know, sign them up for a program, understand what are their biggest limiting factors, you know, within reason, just from a call, try to understand a little bit more context about them. Um, from there with the guys who do sign up, we're looking at their mechanics. We're taking them through a full remote movement screen. Um, a lot of people are confused about how that works, but to be honest, it's the exact same movement screen test that we would do in person. So when we have athletes that do happen to come in person for their initial assessment, it's the exact same process. We're just there walking them through it, but it's actually the exact same drills and screens. So we just have guys film themselves, upload it into a you know Dropbox folder um, and share those videos. And so we've, we've streamlined the process now, obviously, over five and a half years. Um, but we're gathering as much information as we can. We have a very in-depth intake process, questionnaires, um, you know, multiple angles of their mechanics, trying to understand how their metrics have changed. Hey, what's your average fastball? What's your peak fastball? How has that changed? Do you have any injuries? Um, previous surgeries. A lot, of, a lot of the pro guys that we work with um, are guys who used to throw harder. And then there, something happened, and now they're throwing slower. That's like two thirds of the programs we work with have had some sort of decrease in performance. And like what they're like at a loss, they don't know why they used to throw 95 and now they throw 91. 
And so that those guys are really interesting to me because they become kind of a, a problem solving uh, game. And so you really can't help that guy until you understand the context, right? You can't, you can't help the guy who, you know, you, you have to be able to see what changed to, to understand how to fix it. So a lot of times it's, I'm thinking of like Ben Heller right now. He had a, he had Tommy John, but it was not necessarily handled the best in his rehab process. Um, and he came back the next year throwing four or five miles an hour slower. And so, you know, understanding basically how they got from point A to point B is how we kind of reverse engineer and understand how to build a program off of that. So injury history is super important. Um, mechanical cues that they've been focusing on. Sometimes it's as simple as, Hey, this pro guy threw 95, he went somewhere, some facility to train for the off season. They gave him a bunch of cues, a bunch of things to work on. You know, uh, one guy in particular, he was told to get his hips open as early as possible. The next year he's throwing 90. It's like, what happened? He can't figure it out. And he basically just started rotating his pelvis early because he was told this cue. He started like, so you don't understand, you don't actually know how to fix it until you understand what got them there in the first place. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, do you, do you find that sometimes it, like, it, is it hard to help guys with certain parts of the game? Like for example, the mental part of the game, do you, I mean, do you find that's hard from a remote standpoint? Obviously the, the feedback loop is a little bit delayed. So you can still help guys, but you're obviously not there in person, like during their bullpen, being able to work through it pitch to pitch. So that is one of the drawbacks. Um, most of the guys that we work with are kind of looking for added velocity. And so that's really kind of become our bread and butter, but we do a lot more mental stuff in person with the guys who do train here. Um, as far as mental approach, I know you kind of wrote in some of your, your notes, um, you know, what you kind of how what we addressed, what we worked on. Um, I would say the biggest thing that we tell guys mentally is we're trying to simplify the approach and we're trying to reinforce the, the competitiveness and the aggressiveness. So usually when a guy's really struggling with, with command or struggling with repeatability or, there's something off with his mental approach. It's an overemphasis on internal cueing and, or there's way, just way too much going on. There's, there's too much going on in their head or they're worried about where their front foot is landing or they're worried about what their hand is doing or they're worried about like, you know, what their mechanics look like. And so there, there ends up being this overemphasis on like, how do I look or where, what do my mechanics look like or how do my mechanics feel um, as opposed to, hey, let's throw the crap out of this ball through the center of the catcher. Like, let's blow by this hitter. Let's like, when you change the focus from internal to external and just give them something super simple and turn on, like basically turn up the competitiveness and the aggressiveness knob. Um, that's honestly the, like in a nutshell, that's the most helpful mental tip I can give. So what you're saying essentially is when you're on the mound, you shouldn't be thinking about anything at all internally. There might be one, like, at most one like little keyword or one little cue, um, like stay loose, stay relaxed, like whatever it is for that guy who helps them slot into their best mechanical patterns. But if you've got five things going on or you're, you're worried, um, you know, you're worried about how your mechanics look, you're not going to be spending your, your mental effort on actually executing the pitch and being aggressive. So one example of this is you'll see guys that are trying to be super, super fine. And they're kind of like look delicate with their mechanics and they're just trying to like place the ball in like a certain quadrant of the strike zone. Um, you'd be surprised. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but you'd be surprised how often that's fixed by telling them 
throw the ball down the middle as hard as you can. Mm. Because if there are guys struggling with their command, they're trying to be super fine, they're worried about where their hand is, worried about where their front foot is at landing, and you just literally clear the slate and you say, throw the ball as hard as you can down the middle. Well, they're already, they're already like not throwing strikes. They're missing their spots by a foot. Like you, now you throw down the middle. There's still, it's not going to be down the middle, right? They're still going to, they're going to miss, but now they're missing somewhere in the zone. And now you've shifted the focus to aggressiveness and simplicity. Love it. Love it. So that, that's love that's that. a great reset for guys who, who have started feeling for the zone being too fine or worried about what their mechanics look like. Throw the ball down the middle as hard as you can. Pitching coach, old school pitching coaches hate that because they're like, how could you tell somebody to throw the ball down the middle? And like, because they're like, oh, if you throw the ball down the middle, it's going to just go for a home run. But that's actually not what happens. You have a guy like go walk six batters, strike out like four batters, one start. And then he like walks one batter and strikes out 10 the next start just because he changed his focus. So it doesn't actually – throwing it down the middle doesn't actually mean every pitch is down the middle. If, that, that almost that awesome. happens. Like, if you get to the point where every pitch is down the middle, you're like, okay, well, it fixed you. Like you're throwing the ball at your, to your spot every single time. Now we can start splitting the plate in half and – you know, getting kind of getting back to where you were, but that's often kind of the simplest reset when a guy started, started kind of losing his feel. That's, that's good advice. I appreciate you sharing that. Do you, do you have guys shortening their arm, arm, uh, arm motion a decent amount? I, I've started to see that a little bit more the past few years. I think probably Trevor Bauer made that really big just because of how active he is on social media and everything. But is that, is that a trend that more guys are, are asking you whether they should be doing that or not? And are you recommending that? It's definitely a trend um, more so in pro ball than everywhere else. It's kind of a trend that's starting top down. It's starting in pro ball. And then it's kind of like leaking into college ball, leaking into high school. Um, obviously Trevor Bauer is kind of an influence there. Uh, Joe Kelly, Shane Bieber, like Pete Fairbanks, Giolito. Like there's a number of examples of guys where it, it does, it has worked well for. And so, you know, a lot of these pro coaches see that and they're like, oh my God, like if you're struggling at all for any reason, like just shorten your arm path, like, look, it worked for these six guys. And so I think, I think it's a little bit of a fad and I think it, it kind of suffers from survivorship bias a little bit. Like it doesn't work for everybody, but the guys that it does work for are the guys that you see on TV you don't see for every one guy on TV that it works for like the three or four or five guys that they tried it with and it just kind of ruined them. And then they got cut. We, we see those guys like on TV, you see the tip of the iceberg. You see the guys who it would work for. We see like the fallout of like a guy gets a mild flexor strain and rather than just rehab him and see where he's at, it's like, well, we're going to scrap everything you've ever done and change your arm path completely on a whim because it worked for Giolito. Like that's, that's what's happening. It's not just, like, hey, let's. This is another tool in our tool toolkit. If your arm is way off plane, or you know everything's out of sync, or you've had a consistent string of, of shoulder problems, like maybe this is something we can experiment with. Like, I totally agree with that. There's definitely a time and place for playing with a number of variables, and the elbow flexion angle is definitely one of those variables you can play with. Elbow flexion angle just being like, really, when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, you keep your elbow flexion angle here as you lift your arm, or do you allow it to straighten out? Like that's, that's really the variable we're talking about, the elbow flexion angle. Um, that's one variable you can play with. And it's just an extra tool in the toolkit that when a guy's having a specific issue with the timing of his arm or consistent injuries, maybe you play with that. You ask him how it feels. You gather data on that. You see it. how does that affect his velocity, his movement profile? How does it feel on his arm? Like you can start to gather some data in the right scenario and use that as a tool. But that's not what's happening. You're seeing coaches that just 
scrap everything and just go with it, um, assuming it's going to work because it worked for XYZ guy in the big leagues. But they don't gather data on it. The guy drops four miles an hour and they're like, well, you know, I'm right because X, Y, like, so I've seen a bunch of guys that they get changed that they're down five miles an hour or they get changed uh, after a mild, a mild arm injury. Um, you know, when the guy was already throwing upper nineties and they come back and they're throwing 91, 93 and the coach is happy because now it looks better on video. Like, mm-hmm. okay, it looks better on video, but like he was throwing 98 before I, I get, he ran, he ran into a shoulder problem, but like, let's be a little bit more careful before we totally scrap what made that guy successful and then cut them two months later when your little experiment didn't work. So, you know, I just think it's, I just think we need to be, we need to be careful. Um, you see guys like Bauer and Kelly, um, you know, they had success with it, but then there's also, you know, the example of Tyler Glasnow is one that I'd like to give. Um, he was 94 with the pirates, 94, 96 with a shorter arm path hmm. with the raise. He was allowed to lengthen out his arm path to match his lower half a little bit better. Again, not a super, super long arm action, but significantly longer with the pirates and, He's 97 to 100 right now. So it can work both ways. Uh, James Paxson, I tweeted a video of James Paxson the other week. Another example of a guy with a little bit of a longer arm swing. And it works. He throws upper 90s. Like It doesn't necessarily mean it's good or bad if the arm action is short or long. It's much more about does that arm path sink in with what the lower half's doing? Is the arm on time? And does the arm get into good positions? So uh, Pete Fairbanks is a guy with a short path, throws 100. I like his mechanics. Um, you know, he was a guy who was throwing, I think, five, 95, 96, maybe. Um, one of our coaches is in AAA with the Rays. He knows Fairbanks. Um, his mechanics were super ugly, but he was still throwing 94, 96 um, in the minor leagues. And all he needed to do was something to get his arm in plane, and he was going to throw 100. And so for him, he could have gotten his arm in plane in, with different ways without changing the length of his arm path. He happened to shorten up his arm path, and that was what got his arm in plane. But it's not that it was shorter that helped him throw harder. It was the fact that it, his arm is now in plane. If you see what I'm saying, if you see what I'm saying, so um, getting the arm in plane and on time are more important variables than the length of the arm action. But sometimes the length, changing the length of the arm action, can fix it. It can affect those variables. So okay. I don't really think in absolutes as much. I think about what are the flaws holding this guy back? Okay. His arms way out of plane or way late. Okay. Well, shortening up his arm path could be a strategy to fix that. But before we totally change his arm path, which is a very, uh, it's a kind of a very intrinsic thing to a guy's mechanics. It's like something they've typically done since they were a kid and hasn't changed a ton. So before we just go nuclear and make that change, like complete blow up their mechanics and spend four months trying to repattern it. Let's see if there's a, an easier way to, influence that change whether it's like a constraint drill like a figure eight a figure eight drill or something that just helps them you know sequence it better uh, or a lasso drill like i mean there's a number of other tools that we'll go to first that aren't kind of the the big red nuclear button uh, which is shortening up the arm path i've seen you post some stuff about uh getting getting the the rear scap right as a pitcher as you're throwing how like if there's someone out there listening to this or a coach out there how do you know whether your player needs to get in that scat more. So part of the misconception with scat loading is that it's something that should be actively cued, right? Like people hear scat loading. They're like, okay, well, the scaps need to get pinched back behind the body at landing. 
um, you know, to maximize the stretch through the chest um, and to, to improve the efficiency with which you can rotate. Okay, that's true, but like, how do we, how do we get to that position? Um, what you'll see if you look at any hard thrower is that it's not a forced retraction of the scap. It's actually the arm floats through its natural spiral or its natural path. And the scap just naturally takes a path up and around the rib cage and ends up being in that retracted position of landing. So I can do one of two ways. And I, I made this mistake myself because, you know, the gurus I was following in high school would say like, okay, you need to scap load. And so they would say, do this. You break the hands like Billy Wagner. Oh yeah. Yeah. Back, back, right. Like, so that, that was how they interpreted what was happening. But, um, the, the guru I'm thinking of, he'd never really thrown a baseball at a high level. He hadn't felt it. It's so important to be able to have felt what you're talking about. Um, I know not every, not every coach has to have thrown like hundred miles an hour or whatever, but there's so much that I wouldn't really know how to interpret it just from like the technical side. If I hadn't also felt what it feels like to do it right and wrong. So yanking the scaps back like this, um, you end up getting into scap loading too early and it ends up not actually being usable. But if you actually allow the arm to spiral, we call it penduluming or, or like capturing the spiral, but allowing the arm to pendulum down and then capturing that loop as the arm comes up, what you'll see is that the arm naturally tracks into this retracted position without you having to force it to get there. So I'm thinking of like Blake Snell is a perfect example. When he breaks the hands, he's kind of, he's letting that momentum of the handbrake take that arm up this, this spiral. So I'll, I'll talk about it as like the spiral, but also like a, a figure eight or an infinity loop. Like the arm is basically tracking this pendulum into this uh, retracted position and landing. And so the best throwers get there by capturing that momentum and then flowing through. But so it's, it's this continual loop of energy from handbrake down the spiral and then accelerating into ball release. But there's, there's never a break in that sequence and that flow and that loop of energy. And so you're passing through the scapular position. It's not, you, if you just try to retract, the counter movement to that is this. But if you spiral through it, then it flows seamlessly as one movement into ball release and it sequences into your torso rotation. Mm, okay. So I think, if, I think of scapulating as like, it's a byproduct of just capturing like the loop of your arm action well. The scaps will retract if you just kind of let your arm float through its, through its positions, it's not a, it's not a forced movement. What about someone who has a, their, their back elbow gets up really high, or I think like high hand, for example, like they're throwing and their back elbow gets up really high. So they're, I guess they would not be in their scap. I mean, is that just something that that could just be a physical issue? A lot of times that that can be a timing issue um, mm-hmm. where the, the, what the arm is doing is not in sync with what the lower half is doing. And so the arm is trying to build in extra time. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't have, it has all this extra time. And so the, the arm starts to climb to like wait until the front foot lands. Now the front foot lands and now they throw. So a lot of times it's when a guy's tempo is too slow or when they break their hands like way too early, the arm has to like build in time and it climbs. I'm not a fan of that. Um, there's a decent amount of uh, research that indicates that might be putting more stress uh, through the arm. I mean, there's a million guys you can think of who've had shoulder issues who do that um again it's hard it's hard to perfectly uh match up like an injury with a specific mechanical flaw like i'm not going to go say xyz guy had inverted w therefore this is why they got hurt it's really tough to say that because there's so many reasons injuries are really multifactorial but 
I'm typically not a fan of that. Like if a big league all-star comes to me and says like, help me, like, how do I improve my mechanics? I'm going to be very careful about telling him not to do the inverted W if that's what makes him successful. But if it's like a 15 year old who throws 70, that's probably something we're going to fix. So it's still context dependent, but what I don't like about this position right here is now you're basically, now you're not taking the scapula around the rib cage. You're basically taking the humerus and you're cranking it into what's called hyperabduction. So this is abduction. What happens is as you go overhead, some of that motion is coming from the scapula and some of that motion is coming from the humerus. And you ideally want kind of a blend of both because the shoulder stays centered. So shoulders should stay centered as you go overhead. But once you start getting up here, you start cranking outside of that normal range of the shoulder. This is a very impinging position on the shoulder. So well, I, I saw you, I wanted to bring that up because I saw you put a, a post about DeGrom, I think uh, lowering his arm slot um, not that long ago. So, I mean, I mean, it was, I can't, I can't recall exactly what you posted about. I just, I remember you, you saying that and had some, uh, you know, some really good evidence behind that. Why, like, why would he do that? I guess, for the listeners out there. So I don't think he, he might have intentionally done that. I don't think he intentionally lowered his arm slot. Um, I'm actually we're working on a video, a similar video breakdown of Arles Chapman. And what you see with Chapman is when he first entered the league, his arm slot was lower as well. And then he raised his arm slot about eight inches. And then over the course of his career, his arm slot has started to drop back down very close to where it was now when he first started his career. Mm. Um, it's probably not something uh, intentional that DeGrom or that Chapman was trying to do. Um, what's more likely is that he found the posture that was most comfortable posture, basically being like, what is my, tor what is my ideal torso position as I'm moving forward down the mountain of my mechanics? And what you'll see is that the guys with a lower posture guys that will move forward down here as they rotate, they end up being the guys that have lower slots. The guys who are much more upright, think like Tim Linscombe, right? Tim Linscombe was straight over the top. And as he moved towards the target, he was already kind of leaning backwards. So he was in this much more upright posture. So as he rotated, his arm slot basically matches where the shoulders are. And so for DeGrom, it was probably one of those things where he just found, he found the ideal posture of his torso that allowed him to unwind everything in the, in the same plane. Okay. And that's, that's all it was. I, it was. It could be as simple as like moving towards the target instead of being here. He changed it to there. Like it could be the most subtle posture change that would affect whether his torso went from here to there. That's all we're talking about. His, his was like a three to four inch change and it probably wasn't intentional. Would that help a pitcher improve their vertical approach angle? So vertical approach angle for people listening is basically like the, how steep the pitch, uh, how the steepest of the angle of the pitch on its way to the plate. Right, like that's what we're talking about with vertical approach angle. Um, it's not necessarily good or bad, right? It's just it's just one way of explaining what makes certain pitchers successful. So the two ways to increase vertical approach angle are the two things that are basically going to influence it the most are arm slot. So if you have a lower arm slot, the ball is all else equal going to stay more horizontal. Then if you're up here, you're going to have more downhill angle to the ball. So a lower slot is going to give you a higher vertical approach angle. And throwing up in the zone is going to give you a higher approach angle. So if you're a pitcher who throws up in the zone and from like down here, you're going to have a super high vertical approach angle. And if you're a pitcher who throws 
from up here and you're a sinker baller and you throw bottom of the zone sinkers, you're going to have a very low vertical approach. Okay. Okay. So it's not necessarily good or bad, right? There's, there's sinker ballers. There's six foot seven sinker ballers. Like uh, we work with clay Holmes. He dude throws 99 mile an hour bowling balls. Like he's going to be just fine. That's a perfectly, uh, perfectly like reasonable profile as a pitcher. He doesn't have a, a high vertical approach angle, but it's not good or bad. It's just one possible option. So like people see like, okay, Josh Hader has a high vertical, vertical approach angle. It's because he throws from here and he throws up in the zone and his ball has pretty good carry. And that's great. Like that's, that is kind of an outlier thing that is why he's successful. But people will like see one metric and then they'll like latch onto that as being the only thing. Like coaches will see vertical break is associated with higher whiff rates. And so now like every pitcher they coach is chasing maximum vertical break. When like, if you have a guy from this slot and you're chasing maximum vertical break, what you'll find is that the guy does this. He just like mm-hmm. cheats his arm up here to like get behind the ball better to cheat the wrap soda number. But like, he's probably better off staying true to his actual arm slot and being true to the actual pitching profile that he has. Gotcha. So like, all, all this data is like, you need to know when and where to apply it. Like, last, last question. Last question I have for you is flying open or early torso rotation as you call it. But for those, for those listening to me, I know that just front side, front shoulders flying open early is, is that a big issue? And if it is, I, what are some ways you have found that that's helped players? So it definitely is a big issue. That's one of the things that has uh, probably the most noticeable impact on velocity. Like if you see a pitcher that starts flying open, but wasn't before, usually it's three to five plus miles an hour that you'll notice they're down. Uh, the reason being they just, that you can't bring in all the muscles in the torso into the throw if you've already opened up. You just can't actually leverage that trunk rotation and bring the arm and, and unload the arm later into the throw if you've already opened up and landing. So that's that's a super important piece. Um, there's research as well showing that that increases arm stress. If you if trunk rotation occurs before foot plant, it increases arm stress as well. Mm. So that is an important piece. It's as with anything, it's not like a simple black and white answer. It's kind of multifactorial. I did do a full like video breakdown on early torso rotation and some of the causes and also some potential solutions, but two super important things from a mobility standpoint, these are kind of overlooked. One is thoracic rotation. So your, your mobility through your upper back, that's a super important one. If a guy is super locked up through his upper back, well, he's not going to be able to open up his hips while keeping his shoulders closed, right? In order to actually be able to clear the hips into landing and keep the shoulders back, it actually does require pretty good mobility. You can think about like Tim Linscomb, pictures of him at landing like he's completely contorted but he's only able to get into those positions because his torso his t-spine has really good mobility Uh, the other is hip internal rotation that's another key mobility component um, that is often overlooked that can contribute to being able to keep the the front side closed Um, another interesting mobility one is actually cervical rotation so Mm. you might have great motion through your mid back your hips might move well but you just find flying open constantly so what you'll actually find with certain guys um, is that so as they're moving towards the plate they have their eyes on the target right but if they don't have the ability to turn their neck you know 80 to 90 degrees over their front side then what happens is they begin to open up early so that they can keep their eyes on the target because they don't have the ability 
to hold that front shoulder closed while looking at the target. So they start to, they just start to open up early. Mm. So it's like all these things contribute and it, it's just, these are things you would never consider, but all these like factors, that's, that's why the movement screen is so important. That, uh, yeah, that's fascinating stuff. And I, I mean, I tell you what, if I was a pitcher, I would definitely be training with you definitely because you definitely know what you're talking about clearly just by hearing, you know, you, you're able to go in depth, but you're also able to simplify too. And I, I was looking, I was watching that early torso rotation on YouTube that you had. I thought it was very well done along with all the other videos you guys put out, but what, what's a way if someone does want to get in contact with you, like what's the best way to go about that? Yeah. So just reach out to contact at um, You can go to our website, trayathletics.com. We have a section to, to reach out through a contact form on there. Um, but again, we read every email. We're super helpful. I mean, you don't have to sign up for a program to reach out, ask a question. Um, you know, we'll be as helpful as we possibly can. We have someone on staff who's their entire full-time job is to respond to emails and, and be as helpful as they can. And their job is not to sell people programs, right? Their job is to actually just be helpful. So, you know, we would really just encourage people to reach out, ask questions. Um, anyone that's ever tweeted at me or replied with a comment, um, I respond to all the comments. So again, my goal is to be a positive influence in the baseball world and just share information and, and let people kind of track my own journey and, and learning process. Um, I'm not going to pretend or claim that I know everything. What I know today is, you know, significantly more than I knew five years ago. And I'm sure what I know in five years is going to be significantly more than what I know right now. But what I'm doing is just kind of documenting through the videos that I put out, documenting my own learning process. And so, you know, I always like to say that coaching is really a trial and error process. Really developing as a player is a trial and error process. There's no one that just has it figured out and has like the perfect path for every single guy. So because of that, it's trial and error. You have to test stuff. You have to measure it. You have to see what works. You're going to have setbacks. You have to readjust and just keep moving forward. So I think of coaching as really expediting the trial and error process. Can you basically run into less walls on your process? Like, can you fall into less ditches as you, you know, fail forward and continue to improve? Um, so that's, that's kind of our approach here. Um, I mean, we're, we're super passionate about helping guys. All of our coaches are either still currently pursuing their own careers or have played baseball at a high level. So we're a bunch of young, passionate guys who, um, you know, just want to help. Awesome. Ben, I appreciate you coming on, man. I know I'm sure you got 600 players that need your attention. So I, uh, I, I appreciate the time and I, I know you're, you're busy. So again, man, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Patrick.